90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Ah, doing good. I'm pretty sad to be back from spring break, that's for sure. Well, I mean, I've been back for a week, basically, so... Did you ever go anywhere, though? No, you're not (laughs) supposed to. Spring break is when everybody else goes places, and then you actually get to do things. Man, I didn't get to enjoy that this year, but, you know, I did go skiing and visited Capulin Volcano for the first time since I was probably eight years old, so I was very excited about that. Nice. We, we've talked about Capulin on the show before, but I didn't know it had been that long since you visited. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you drive right by it, but I'd never, I hadn't actually gone up and spent any appreciable amount of time on it. And so I took my kid up there and um, Capulin's really cool. It's in uh, northeastern New Mexico and it's this little, little bitty cinder cone hanging out there on the plains. And it's really neat because in uh, the summertime, spring, summertime, they have ladybug migration go through there. And it is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I highly suggest anyone is out there in May and June to go to Capulin. And um, everything that is standing still and some things that aren't are covered in ladybugs. And it's beautiful and weird. And the volcano is really cool. So yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. I mean, d- during these transitional seasons, we actually have that here a lot as well. <laughs> if you have a, a window that is sun-facing most of the day, uh, you'll get a lot of ladybugs that somehow get in and just congregate on your walls. <laughs> well, at least they're cute, right? <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> uh, spoken like a dude. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have a ton of news and catching up and feedback and lots of things piled up since last week's show was recorded early since I was on travel. Yes, yes, I saw that. Um, Some of the stuff's pretty exciting, too. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things in here, and I think the one that we should start with (laughs) is, uh, I guess you could call this citizen science or crowdsourcing or something, but they are trying to come up with the National Research Council is trying to come up with a name for the next royal research ship that's going to do Arctic work. And they made the mistake of making it a public poll. I love this so much. <laughs> so there are, there are titles like the RRS David Attenborough. and Which makes sense. Right. Uh, but I, I will let you reveal the current frontrunner. <laughs> I appreciate it, just because I couldn't even speak out loud when I uh, found out about this. So this distinguished research vessel, the current name that's leading the poll is the RRS Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) (laughs) I hope this makes it so badly. (laughs) Well, I I like if you go through some of the, so the top four, that's, number one. The next three aren't really all that fancy. Um, But I do like some of the other suggestions that are further down. Uh, My favorite would be the RRS Usain boat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty good, too. It seems a little, um, seems like that might be dated, you know, 20 years from now. Is anyone going to get that one? Yeah. And the ship's not going to be operational until 2019, at least. Um. RRS Ice Ice Baby. I've heard several people bring that one up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my son's choice is obviously Bodemus Prime. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> 
I've heard rumors that there's the same sort of thing for naming the U.S.'s new stealth bomber, too. I don't know if this is true or just something I heard as a takeoff of this, and one of them was, like, Bomby McBombface. (laughs) (laughs) Stealthy McStealther (laughs) or something. Yeah. So this is fabulous. I hope it it makes it. (laughs) Yes. So I've got a link in the show notes to uh, an article if you want to see this and check out the current poll stats. Uh, (laughs) Uh, another thing I wanted to mention, so Matt Hall and Graham Gansel uh, have started a podcast called Undersampled Radio, where mm-hmm. they talk about uh, geophysics, some more signal processing type stuff, have some interviews, a little bit about the uh, the oil and energy industry. It's, it's an excellent show, and you should definitely uh, add it to your podcast player and give them a listen. Uh, yes, yep, I absolutely agree, and it's a very clever name as well. I appreciate yes, it. Yes, well, th- th- there was a long discussion in our uh, Software Underground Slack channel <laughs> about what, th- what what the name should be for this podcast. So, <laughs> Number one, what a nerd. And <laughs> number two, it's it was an excellent choice. <laughs> I mean, maybe it should be, you know, squiggly McSquiggleface. So. <laughs> Clearly. Well, Clearly. When, when Don't Panic goes under, that's... That'll be our next one. <laughs> that's our next show, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yep, that's good. That is good. So then uh, we had some listener feedback, so I'll I'll let you grab one of these. We must have a lot of people that love us whose names are Martin. That makes me happy as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> My cat's name is Martin, too. Um, <laughs> so now this one is a different way of looking at the geologic timescale. And as John said, it's from listener Martin, who's at uh, Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University in South Africa. So that's pretty cool. And, you know, we hear a lot of looking at how old the universe is, you know, if you condense it, like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan condensing it into a month or a day or whatever. And so Martin's done the calculations after thinking of an analogy of a movie to visualize the geological time scale. And so he has a really big list of, you know, starting, which winds up being 2,218 days ago is the formation of Earth and going through sort of some of the biggest you know the cambrian explosion when the kt boundary kpg boundary now um when the first hominin fossils show up and uh it's a it's a pretty neat uh pretty neat sort of read through and gives you a different perspective so you should definitely check out that link as well yeah and then listener bart recommended after hearing us uh, gripe about the windows 10 start (laughs) menu (laughs) <laughs> this app called Start 10 uh, that gives you a more regular looking uh, start menu. And he said there's also a program called Oblite, uh, Oblitile, I'm thinking, okay. uh, O-B-L-Y Tile, mm-hmm. that he used <laughs> to customize the modern style start menu. But of course, it now doesn't work with Windows 10. Obviously. <laughs> um, I love this idea because I feel... I feel like a lot of people, you know, want their old start menu back. And basically that's what this does. Um, five bucks, that's not that big a deal. I might I might do this just to get my old start menu back. I like it. That was an excellent suggestion. Yeah, and I, I don't have a problem paying with software because I know that software developers have to eat uh, <laughs> at some point and not everything can be open source, but it seems like uh, a good thing. Uh, we also had... Another listener, uh, Vic 
suggested that people look at a MATLAB alternative Octave, which is a, a free and open source uh, alternative for MATLAB. I've never used it, but I've heard of people using it. I was pretty proud of myself. I looked that up. <laughs> but I didn't know, you know, any differences between MATLAB since I can't use that either. But <laughs> yeah. So sorry it took so long to get all of that feedback actually uh, <laughs> processed, but we were a little bit ahead in our recording. Yep. Shockingly. <laughs> yeah, that's last time that happens. Uh. But, uh, but I think we had some uh, Twitter, Twitter interactions that actually inspired you to um, plan out this week's show, right? Yes. So Ben from the Orbital Mechanics, this show is entirely your fault. <laughs> uh. I'm the one who should be mad. You had fun. Now I've got to look at geoid pictures of the moon now. <laughs> Not cool, Ben. Not cool. <laughs> so... Uh, ben had tweeted this article a while back, and also he said that he was reading something else this week and it had the unit of milligal in it. And he said, hey, I know what that is. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. So, yeah, so that was cool. Uh, but he uh, sent us this article about bizarre lunar orbits, and then it turns out that they're related to gravity, and he had some questions about gravity and how these calculations on the moon would compare to those on Earth, which sent me down a rabbit hole, which has <laughs> resulted in this show. <laughs> um, but it's a really interesting rabbit hole, more so than I thought when you first said it was going to be about gravity. So I will say it's kind of cool. Yeah. So th the story is that when Apollo 15 was at the moon, uh, the command module released a sub-satellite called PFS-1. And this was supposed to orbit the moon and study charged particles and magnetic fields as it orbited the moon, as the moon orbited Earth. Right. And, and that sounds straightforward, right? Exactly. Because even back then, we had a really good, really good handle on, well, orbital mechanics, we thought. Right. But that's not what and, happened. <laughs> yeah. So eight months later, Apollo 16 comes by and they release PFS-2 the companion satellite to this. And both of these satellites were supposed to be in orbits that were about 90 to 120 something kilometers. So that's 55 to 76 miles above mm -hmm. the surface. Yeah, but it didn't take very long for that to be busted, right? I mean, this guy got really close. Yeah, so within about two, two and a half weeks, PFS2 was skimming within six miles of the surface. Which is ridiculous i mean obviously yes. you don't have you know the atmospheric drag and stuff like that on the moon but still um you would have thought we would have had a better idea of what these little guys were gonna do right and i mean it didn't even make it very long due to this no. irregular orbit right well and then it, it did a, something really weird so it actually backed off uh it got further away and appeared to be relatively stable and then 35 days later plummeted to its death <laughs> Uh. <laughs> so I hate to keep bringing this up, but this book made such a profound effect on me. I mean, they talk about this stuff in Seven Eves, too. So when I was reading this article, I kept thinking about that as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I digress anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, like you said, there's no atmosphere to be causing any kind of drag on these satellites. Mm -hmm. So what is causing this weird orbital behavior? Ugh. Well. It, it has to be gravity. Oh, man. <laughs> um, this is some gnarly gravity, too. I mean, 
we're not talking about you know it perturbed the orbit of these guys by a little bit and moved along i mean it plummeted this little subsatellite in a little over a month so that's a weird looking geoid <laughs> yeah actually the moon is the and somebody will probably come back with some counterexample, but to my knowledge at least the last time i looked into this the moon <laughs> was the most gravity asymmetric body in our solar system well, that is super interesting. Um, we'll talk about this later, but a lot of that has to do with plate tectonics, which I thought was highly interesting as well. But I'm sure we will get back to that. Um, and this makes a lot of sense geologically because where are those big, lumpy gravity highs? And they're in the mare. So right, those... so these are seas of lava, which are really dense, mafic rocks. Right, exactly. Um, and so, and I didn't know, is this something that is normally said? So we're talking about these gravity highs and they're basically mass concentrations and they call them mass cons. Is that something we talk about when we talk about the earth too? Uh, no, we generally okay. don't talk about mass concentrations in the earth because when we're looking at gravity for geophysics and exploration purposes, it's very subtle changes in gravity compared to this. We don't really have significant mass concentrations on the Earth. You know, things that are huge. Right. And these are huge, the ones on the moon, right? Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about if we had something that was the size of a state or several states or a country, then we might call that a mass concentration. But when you're talking about a sedimentary basin or something, like, yeah, not really. <laughs> Dang sedimentary basins. Um so to get a handle on how big this gravity deflection is, and this is what Ben was talking about on Twitter, which was super cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's using, to think about this, it's using a plumb bob, right? So something that's just going to hang there and should point directly down, but it doesn't in the mare. Yeah, so if you are on Earth, on an ideal Earth, uh, <laughs> And you, you have a weight at the end of a string, it's going to point towards the center of the earth. And right. that works pretty well. Exactly. Uh, yes, if you are standing at the edge of a mare, your plumb bob will be a third of a degree off from straight down. That's crazy. And that's because there's a gravity anomaly of about a half a percent, which is massive. Right. Not 0. 0.05, 0. 0.5. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> I had to check on that. Um, that's really interesting. And they even talk about it's enough that sort of, you know, an astronaut walking around would sort of be affected by it too. Um, and they talk about these mare. So these are these big gravity highs. And it's not just geological. I mean, you could have really dense lava too, but they're actually not sure if that's the only reason, which I found really interesting. Um, because it might have to do something with maybe the mantle is closer to the surface underneath these mare, so like mantle upwelling. And so just due to differentiation when the moon formed, you know, the heavier things are towards the center. So the mantle is going to have a lot of iron and magnesium. And so that would contribute to those gravity highs too. And we're not really exactly sure if that's the case or if it's just the actual you know, makeup of the lava or what really makes them such a large mass concentration. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we definitely don't know everything about the moon. And I remember 
years ago at one of the Lunar and Planetary Science conferences, hearing something about an asymmetric uh, mantle core crust thickness uh, talk, but it's been so many years that I don't stand a chance at finding the notes for that. <laughs> uh, we actually had it. You don't have them in, you know, your field notes number two or something. You know, this this was pre, uh, pre being pre very notes. organized. Yep, I gotcha. <laughs> um, we actually had somebody talk about the moon, um, and uh, in our colloquium last semester, or maybe it was last year. Um, but it was surprising how much we don't know. We've taken sort of all this stuff for granted, like we think we've got this figured out. And that was a lot of what he talked about was sort of, it was more mineralogical differentiations and um, how we don't have an excellent handle on it. So I thought this was really, um, that's really interesting. And like I said, the geoid looks awful. It's awful. It it does. There will be a link in the show notes uh, Mm -hmm. to the story where you can see a picture. But... So the fascinating thing is, it turns out, because of the way these mass concentrations are distributed on the moon, there are four orbits that are stable. Just four. Wow. And (laughs) uh, if you are not in one of these orbits, you need to carry a lot of fuel to keep reboosting, or you will also plummet. Uh, (laughs) So the four orbits are different inclinations from the equator, so the angle that you would make. they are 27, 50, 76, and 86 degrees, which is a nice range. That is unbelievable to me. That's really interesting. And it is sort of a cautionary tale insofar as this is why you have to spend the money up front <laughs> to send satellites out to planets you're going to land on or something because, you know, that's that's only four four different inclinations you can hit and everything else will send you, you know, into the surface. So you need to know a lot about the geology before you ever get there. Right. Or if you put a satellite in a different orbit, you can learn about the geology, which oh. we've also done. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yes, that is true, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good point. So PFS1 was at 28 degrees. So that's very close to that 27 degree stable inclination. Mm-hmm. Uh, but PFS2 is at 11 degrees, which is nowhere near any of them. Yep. Exactly. Hence the lifespan of 35 days. Right. So when we were talking about this, uh, you mentioned plate tectonics and how that had some kind of role in making mascons not a factor here on Earth and some other planets that look geologically active. Exactly. And I think that's sort of the reason that you know that, too, Um, because not just Earth, which I'm sure we will talk about this in the near future, Venus has a ridiculously active... um, plate tectonics you know the surface of venus i think the entire planet's resurfaced every 100 million years or something don't quote me on that but it's something very young geologically um because there's so much redistribution and so the same thing on earth right we've got really active plate tectonics that's been going on for a long time so maybe you don't get these mass concentrations just simply due to all the movement of you know the mantle and the the crust You do a pretty good job of cycling everything through and on a very broad scale getting rid of any heterogeneities, (laughs) which a broad scale is what matters when we're talking orbital mechanics. Uh, Right, exactly. So you're making all this crust, but you're getting rid of it at the same time. And so overall, it's pretty uniform. So that's pretty interesting. So why, you know, the moon we think is maybe old and crusty but who knows maybe there is some sort of processes that we just haven't quite figured out yet 
Yeah. Well, so this led Ben to ask, and so far all we've done is regurgitate this story. Yes. <laughs> but uh, it led Ben to ask, what would be the largest deflection of the plumb bob on Earth? Excellent. Excellent. And I did not go through and try to figure out where the highest mass concentration on Earth would be because I got stuck in <laughs> this experiment that we're going to talk about. I love what I'm going to call ancient geophysics. It's not really ancient. Um, I, I like old geophysical experiments because they're elegant. They use amazing amounts of precision and instrumentation for the time. And I, there are several of these that I'm going to now put in our potential shows list. Everything from measuring the size of the Earth to trying to figure out uh, what the shape of the Earth was when you were a teenager many, many, many hundreds of years ago. Uh, <laughs> but this this specific story is about the Shihalion experiment. Yeah, and uh, you put a link in the show notes on how to pronounce that too, which I think is great. <laughs> I, I did because I had no idea. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. Um, so... This is several hundred years old, right? And if you're up on your etymology, you'll recognize that that's a Scottish word, right? And um, so we're talking about trying to figure out the mean density of the Earth. Right. So this was attempted in 1774. Uh, there was a French attempt before this in 1738, but it had pretty limited success. And so the idea was they had some money left over from a Venus transit project, uh, astronomers are very interested in the mean density of the Earth, for reasons we'll get into. Mm -hmm. And in 1774, they decided to try to figure out what the mean density of the Earth was once and for all. Exactly. And you talked about them being elegant. And so I think this is kind of cool because it's definitely starts with measuring something that is near and dear to you and then upscaling it to Earth size, right? Yeah. So they looked around tried to find a mountain because if you are persistent enough, you can measure the mean density and the size of a mountain. Okay. Uh, nowadays, you probably could do this with a DEM very quickly. Yeah, that's probably true. Not so in 1774. <laughs> yeah, because processor speed, so slow. <laughs> yeah, the, the human computer was a little bit limiting. Exactly. So... Uh, they tried to find something that would be nice and relatively easy to characterize, so something that's symmetric, something that's isolated, where it's not going to be affected by a lot of things around it, uh, something that they at least have some knowledge about and think that they can survey, and that's how they found Shihalian. So I love it, because what I imagine is like some kid drawing a pointy mountain, <laughs> and then some scientist back then saying, you know what, this is what we need to find. <laughs> the pointiest, most alone mountain that we can see. It's just great. <laughs> the ideal yeah. mountain, you know? <laughs> well, and what's cool is, so the French used a very similar technique here. Uh, like everything else in earth science, it seems like, uh, Newton thought of it. Yep. Uh, but <laughs> I don't know where this comes from, man. But this is one case where Newton had thought about doing this exact experiment, did some calculations, and decided that it wasn't practical. 
which blows my mind because it was possible with the instruments of Newton's day. Right, right. Uh, So I have no idea why he decided this wasn't practical, but in 1774, they find this mountain, and they go out with a pendulum, and on the north and south side of the mountains, measure the deflection of the pendulum due to the gravitational attraction of the mountain. So this is kind of that terrain effect that we talked about. Right, the thing you usually correct for. Right. And how do you measure the deflection of a pendulum when you're next to a mountain? Uh, they did it with relative, uh, or they used the reference frame of the star. So they did all of this with astronomical observations, wow. of course, yep. astronomical society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and plus, and no city lights at that time. No city lights. And they used <laughs> hundreds of reference points and took repeated measurements over and over. They had these huge instruments. They actually built shacks and observation posts because they were there for a long time doing this. Uh, it's like the Earth scope of the 1700s, I think. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's a <laughs> very it. good analogy. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, huh. So how'd they do? Well, they did pretty pretty well, but at, at first they assumed some kind of rough volume and density for the mountain and then said, well, the Earth is about twice as dense as the mountain. And mm. that's not that's not <laughs> bad. Mean Mean density. Uh, yeah. okay. but then they had to survey the mountain and they found out that surveying the mountain was difficult. And when you're looking at all of these points that the surveyors give you and you don't have a computer doing interpolation in 3d is really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Can't and imagine. there's, there's a, a, on the page that talks about this, I don't totally believe all of this because there are prior instances of contour lines being used. But supposedly, this is where contour lines were devised for making topographic maps and volume estimations. Um, that's pretty interesting, actually. I guess this might be one of those cases of extensive use, you know. Yeah, and Topo. well, and the idea was you had this... 2d plane and you had a bunch of points from surveyors on it and there was no way to numerically calculate all of these interpolation points in any kind of reasonable time Uh, so they started drawing these lines of constant height and then all of a sudden it was a topo map that's an excellent story right (laughs) it's it's pretty cool (laughs) so and that's much truth there is is in that we might never know yeah that is true and that's why calculus is important to geologists uh, yeah, I mean, th- this is a calculus problem. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> and th- they do talk about they divided the mountain into several distinct levels. There you go. And summed them. So that should start ringing some bells in terms of integration. If you've mm-hmm. had. Yep. Uh, yep. So, anyway, they did this and they decided after correcting for things like the curvature of the earth, because even though it's not a huge mountain, uh, the curvature of the Earth changes your local zenith, your local up direction. Right. Uh, they just came up to a figure of 11.6 arc seconds of deflection. Okay. And what is it now? What do we know that it is now? Well, so we, we don't know what that exact... Well, the deflection was pretty good, actually. Okay. Um, to put that in a number that people can think about, that's 0. 0.003 degrees... So, people Ben, that's a factor of 100 less. Ah. People don't think about arc seconds. 
No. <laughs> Is that how I nerdy don't think so. I am? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there's 60 arc minutes in 360 degrees. Right. And then 3,600 arc seconds, seconds. in 360 exactly. degrees. Yeah, okay. So they actually, after doing all their surveying, all these calculations, they nailed the mean density of the Earth to within 20%. 300 years ago. Yeah. Impressive. That's what I thought. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, I love thinking about the size of this experiment to get that number. That's so cool. Well, and that's why I love these uh, old geophysics experiments. Uh, <laughs> because right. they, they always <laughs> do surprisingly well. Uh. Exactly. See, when we all work together as scientists on these big big questions you know stuff usually comes out of it so um that's pretty neat and 300 years later we can't get you know that's within 20 percent. that's pretty impressive well and then so there's another hutton charles hutton working on this project as well Mm -hmm. uh that said well we know the relative density of things in the solar system related to earth but we don't know the absolute density because we don't know the absolute density mean density of earth well, now they knew the mean density of Earth, so they could go through and get the mean density of bodies in the solar system, just like they had got the mean density of the Earth by knowing the density of the mountain and the relative gravitational difference. Right. Okay. So they did this, and there's a table. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, once again, shockingly good. Uh, in 1778, density mean density for Mars estimated... Uh, 3,300 kilograms per cubic meter. Current value, 3,934. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's see. Venus, 5,800. Modern, 5,204. Uh, wow. Yeah. it's so- Mercury was pretty bad for some reason. The, the estimate for Mercury was way off. It's, uh, what kills, well, Mercury is, you know, pretty far away. You probably didn't know that much about it. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. Maybe that's why. <laughs> um, but this kills me because so many times geology students are like, why do we have to take math? This is why you have to take math. Yeah, and it's, this is not hard math. No, exactly. This is calculus too. You know, which nearly every geologist I feel like you know across the country has to take. And it's like this is why. Even if you're never going to have to do this, because now we do have supercomputers and DEMs and everything, you need to know how to do it. Number right. One, somebody to has to write the software. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, you've got to appreciate it. And, you know, you have to know what you're dealing with. Just like when we talk about why do you have to learn field mapping? No one does field mapping anymore. Well, you're going to look at a lot of field maps. So you should probably understand how they got to where they are. And I feel right. like this is the same sort of thing. But. I digress on my pro-math stance. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so then it gets even more impressive. 24 years later, there's the Cavendish experiment, which got the value an impressive amount closer to the modern. Um, So surely he he built on this, right? I mean, at least he knew about this. And so he got it to within like 1% or something ridiculous. Yeah, just just a tad over 1% of the modern value. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, so the coolest part about this is now people have gone back and looked at the Shahalian data with modern techniques and? using 
that data with a modern DEM and computational technology, they got very close to the modern value. So it's not a data problem. It was a data processing problem. Wow. So this uh, is why you have to be good at calculus. <laughs> yeah. And then they also repeated the experiment with a modification. And I love this because when I do global geophysics for students, I have a test problem that is this. <laughs> but I didn't know that they did this in 2005 at the Shehalian site, and now I'm going to change my test question. Um, <laughs> they awesome. used a very accurate pendulum clock. You okay. run it at the bottom of the mountain, and you measure its period, uh -huh. and then you go to the top of the mountain, and you measure its period, and the difference in the period of the pendulum can tell you the delta G, and then you can back out the mass difference or density difference that's awesome uh <laughs> now in my problem on the test i think i made the clock run for uh, several weeks maybe a month and then i told you how much time it gained or lost mm -hmm. and you had to you had to figure out uh, some things about the mountain from that but here they didn't want to leave them running for a long time so they measured it to i think it was one in one part in one million oh wow. the period difference wow. yeah it was impressive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's um, super cool that you could get that kind of accuracy. Right. So, I mean, physics, basic physics, and a little bit of math, and a pendulum or a plumb bob and a transit, and you can figure out the mean density of the Earth 300 years ago. <laughs> it's so mind-blowing to think about how little we've advanced since then, really. Right. I mean, you know, technique-wise and everything, but for Cavendish in the 1700s to get within 1%, that's pretty cool. I mean, you don't change physics, and all of these things are yep. pretty basic physics. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I thought this was a really fascinating story of an old geophysics experiment, and now I'm digging up some more. So if you liked this one, <laughs> you should let us know, because I'll find more. <laughs> It's gonna. It sounds like a like a like the ancient aliens hoaxes or something like that. Ancient <laughs> geophysics. I like it. Yeah, except gonna... these actually happened. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find about that later. Right. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you'll still have time to do the podcast when you're doing your uh, History Channel show. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I don't. Did you have anything else to say about that? Uh, no, um, I really enjoyed reading about it, though, and it does bring up that whole, uh, I don't mean to keep harping on it, but I get asked it so much, you know, why do I need to learn this? And it's like, this is why you need to learn this. Like, you should, I feel like the, I hate to say the older I get, but it's true, the more I get interested in sort of the history of science aspects. And um, there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from just looking at what's been done previously. Um, and so I think it's important to sort of understand what these old experiments were and you know have we advanced very far from there or you know just giving you ideas of where to advance from here exactly and if you are teaching they're great test questions so <laughs> <laughs> man that's the coolest thing ever um i think i would get um some really bad reviews if i asked that <laughs> despite the fact that my students have all had calculus and physics but right that's okay <laughs> Well, I think that means then it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! 
And so actually the orbital mechanics did their own little fun paper uh, yes. because we had sent them something a few weeks ago. They talked about bubbles sinking in a tank of a rocket as it was launching. And they said, how do bubbles sink? So I sent them a paper that talked about how bubbles in Guinness can sink. <laughs> That's not the paper we're going to do today, though. Our favorite subject. <laughs> yes. If, if you want to hear that paper, you should definitely go check out their episode and just check out their podcast. They're awesome. Uh Yes. I thoroughly enjoy listening to their show. If you're at all interested in space flight, which if you listen to this, you probably are. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, uh, But this one's also from a listener, right? This is also from a listener. This is from listener Peter. And Peter sent this paper in. I thought it was fascinating because I had heard a little bit about it and hadn't been forced to read anything about it until now. <laughs> forced, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, this was super cool, too, and it actually is... is pretty neat to dovetail our ancient geophysics with this very sort of modern electronics law, Moore's law. Yeah, so it's called More Than More, or I like the title, The Chips Are Down. Yeah. <laughs> a little better. Uh, <laughs> so it is about Moore's law, which says that the number of transistors on a microchip will double about every two years. Generally, that means the chip's performance does too. Right, and this came about um, Gordon Moore, who co-founded Intel, right? He said this back in the 60s, I think, right? 65 or 7 or something like that um, is when he sort of stated this. Yeah, so in 65, he made this statement in a, uh, an essay about the evolution of technology. I think he said in the original essay it would double about every year. Then he revised that back a little. Uh, this essay that he wrote then is fascinating. It's not the paper. Uh, this is a review paper from this year. Uh, mm-hmm. But in this essay, he talked about things like home computers, smartwatches, self-driving cars. Which it, seems like not a big deal until you remember that it's 1965. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, yep. yeah, and the idea is, is, the, is Moore's Law going to break down? Are we going to hit some kind of a of a roadblock where we can't fit any more on a chip? I think I didn't even understand that it. This is actually, I mean, it's called Moore's Law, but this is something that the semiconductor industry actually follows. Like they put out research roadmaps that are use Moore's Law, right? I don't think I knew that before this paper. Yeah, so making your own silicon chips is a really complicated process. It requires a bunch of specialized machinery. There are not many places in the world that do it. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things, the people that make the machines, the people that do the chip design, the actual fabricators that do all the steps, the people that make test jigs, all of them have to advance at the same rate because if any one piece isn't ready, nothing can happen. Okay, interesting. So they, they formed this coalition in the industry. And yeah, they published a roadmap and they said, we're going to do this every two years. We're going to double computing power and here's how we're going to do it. And they have. And that's been in place since the nineties then. Right. But now maybe not. Yeah. And so if you want to know, uh, the average feature on a top of the line microprocessor right Mm -hmm. now, so in your MacBook or your iPhone is 14 nanometers across. Uh, that blew my mind. And 14 nanometers, that's 14 times 10 to the negative 9 meters. 
that's not a unit you're used to thinking in. I, I can't compare it to a hair because a hair is like 20 microns. Microns, so, yeah. Uh, it's smaller than most viruses. Uh, that's the one that's the killer, yeah. Because, I mean, I look at magnetic minerals that are less than a micron across, right? And those are super hard to image and actually can't image them very well. And a micron, 10 to the minus 6. Right. 10 to the minus 9. And that is circuitry. That's unbelievable. So you're looking at a transistor smaller than a bacteriophage that gives you the flu. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you start talking about this sort of atomic scale stuff, because that's really what it is, I mean, there's um, the chair of this roadmap organization is saying, you know, we'll get to the two to three nanometer limit where features and circuits, and this is by the 2020s, are just 10 atoms across. Right. Wow. <laughs> and so now you're talking about quantum mechanics, which is something that isn't just regular good old physics that doesn't change. Yeah. And so at some point we have to, physics will limit us and we'll continue to innovate, but not in the same way that we do, which is packing more and more on the, the same chips, right? Right. Well, I mean, it's less physics is limiting us, but our understanding of physics is limiting us. True. Uh, they did have a quote in here that said, what does it mean to quantum balance your checkbook? I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> har har. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> this like break off from Moore's law, though, it, it means a lot more than just, you know, we're not following this roadmap. But I mean, this has some economic implications that hopefully our economist listeners might <laughs> weigh in about because now they're saying that these just like you said, everyone had to get on the same page so everything would be ready at the same time. But now some of these people are going to break away since we're not going to do these two-year Moore's Law roadmaps anymore. Yeah. And I mean, really, we'll be able to get smaller and smaller. We'll be able to push the boundaries of physics and we'll push our own knowledge of physics. But at some point, it's going to get so expensive, it's not worth it. Right. Well, not yet. Not yet. Uh <laughs> And, but there are problems currently. If you look at a graph of transistors per chip versus time, it's going up linearly, uh, following Moore's law. As predicted. But mm-hmm. if you look at a graph of clock speed of a CPU versus time, about 2004, it goes flat. And we haven't increased chip clock speeds in a long time. Hmm. Interesting. The reason for that is not that we can't push the chip faster. It's because we can't get the heat out of the chip fast enough. Which is always the problem with anything electronic, right? Right. So you have these tiny features. So around this time, they were getting below the 90 nanometer limit. And that's when getting smaller and smaller started to suddenly get hard because you're forcing a lot of electrons through these tiny channels. Things start heating up. And you have to slow down. Uh, You can maybe pack more onto a chip by doing some stacking, but then you get heat problems again, or you have to slow down again. Uh, So it's a really difficult problem right now. One, One way that they've talked about dealing with this is by lowering the voltage that processor cores operate at. And we've seen that. We've gone from 5 volts to 3.3 volts to 1.8 volts, and now there's some 0.8 volt processor cores, but you have to get down into the the millivolt levels to have this 
even work. To get rid of that problem. Um, I thought this was an interesting um, quote in here as well from a computer scientist at uh, University of Iowa who is just sort of saying, you know, just because we're getting rid of Moore's Law or sort of throwing it out, it doesn't mean that we're not going to innovate. And it says, think about what happened to airplanes. A Boeing 787 doesn't go any faster than a 707 did in the 1950s, but they're very different airplanes. So talking about, you know, the carbon fiber fuselages and all the electronics in it. So, you know, this doesn't mean that you're not going to keep innovating, but just like you said, it's got to be in a different way. Yeah, and really... We, if we don't right now think we need a ton more power on your smartphone or your tablet or your computer because a lot of what's happening now is not happening there. It's happening in the cloud, which is code for someone else's computer. <laughs> so weird. Um, I'm uh, going to take offense, too, to something you said a while ago about top of the line, and you said your MacBook or your iPhone. I'm just going to I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I'm using some top of the line examples. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I so, <laughs> um, I got your really, back, Bill Gates. It's okay. <laughs> but I mean, really, though, if you're looking at if you are Intel or you are AMD, are you going to care about packing more and more onto a small chip for a consumer device, or are you going to care about providing the most energy efficient processor you can to Amazon or Google, who are going right. to buy? thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of servers a year to keep their cloud services running right exactly um yeah it's just the changing face of how we do everything today so it's uh it's pretty interesting actually um i i learned a lot reading this article it's kind of cool yeah it really was uh so We'll have it linked in the show notes. I believe that everybody should be able to get this as an open access article from Nature. Uh, mm -hmm. It just came out in February. Yep. Uh, yep. It's an excellent read, even for non-techie people. So. Yeah. Well, if you have any fun papers you'd like to send us or tell me what top-of-the-line tech I missed <laughs> or uh, any other feedback about the show, uh, Shannon, how can they send that in? Well, uh, please send your geoid pictures, because you know I love them, to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And uh, let's keep these uh, Twitter convos going. They're super interesting. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And together, we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.